Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Spernova's Interview Series, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova's Interview Series. You know, I do have to warn you all, this is a big podcast. It's first of all the longest interview we've ever done, almost one hour exactly, not counting this introduction and the closing that you'll hear at the end. More importantly, it's perhaps one with some of the biggest ideas of our series. And like many big idea discussions, it's going to take some contemplation and reflection on all our parts for us to truly appreciate it. It's about a subject that's been in the news a great deal lately, the strategic innovation of how to harness the collective intelligence of us all. It's about leveraging social networks through the power of the Internet to help us do greater things. It's also about taking the man-machine interface we all hear about to a whole new level of galactic proportions. As our speaker calls it, it's about augmentation, connecting us as human beings to the whole system of systems we live within, including all other human beings and our creations, to give us the leverage to reach our highest possible potential. Along the way, this is also a story about the very beginnings of what we think of today as the modern computer industry, going all the way back to the early 1950s when a then former American military radar engineer who had been based in the Philippines in the 1940s was looking for a place to do research into something that would change the world. Along the way, he helped develop many of the concepts we now take for granted, including the idea of the hyperlink and the core concepts behind navigating the Internet. He was, in fact, the primary user of only the second computer ever connected to what was then called ARPANET. Oh, and yes, he was also the co-inventor of something ubiquitous today, the computer mouse. As you can see, this is a big story, and we ask for your patience and careful attention to what may seem at first as quite a meandering story of a man's quest to pursue an incredible life passion of innovation. We believe it will be well worth your while. Our guest is the legendary thinker, inventor, and Bootstrap Institute founder, Doug Engelbart, and we are very grateful to have him as our guest for this episode of Sternova. We spoke to him at his offices for the Bootstrap Institute, housed within Logitech, the world's largest supplier of computer mice in the world. Well, Doug, welcome to Stranova. Oh, thank you very much. Well, as a first question here, can you tell our audience a bit about what you mean by augmentation and how it relates to, and I guess initially I was thinking man-machine interaction, but you're indicating it's even larger than that. Oh, much larger. It's all of the different things that we've done to increase our capabilities like your capability to do your job is dependent upon your capability to get to the place of work, to speak the language, to write, to read, to 
be able to use telephones and elevators, to know how to use a wristwatch, to just many, many things, capabilities that are sort of subordinate to the dominant one, but it's all a big interconnected set of capabilities. Oh, just begin to say, well, that's interesting. So finally, I started realizing that there's a principle here that they aren't just all things that the raw, unconditioned human was able to do, that all these things added and augmented that capability. Very, very early, the simple use of tools and hunting tools or clothing or all those things started augmenting them. So right on down the line, you could just write a list of all the different artifacts you see, the buildings, <laughs> sidewalks, automobiles, boy, a big deal like this. And so then I had gotten oriented early about that led to all this pursuit by the thoughts that what could you do to help mankind the most? For some reason, I got on this personal pursuit that that's what I want to do is to find out how I can organize a career that will maximize the benefit that it would have to mankind. That's actually it's an interesting statement. A lot of us do have idealistic visions. At the same time, a lot of people that have gone into technology fields in particular, that's not been the first thing that they think of when they're going into their job. They may want to do good in the world, but they don't think of that oh. necessarily in what they're doing in their engineering. Well, so I started going to libraries and looking at all that and finding about natives in some tropical area where being suffered by, you know, mosquitoes and disease. What's a mosquito carry disease? Oh, the yellow fever. At yellow the time. fever and things certainly like that. Certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, certainly with Walter Reed and all. Yes. Yeah, things like that. It says okay, but you don't just go down there all by yourself and fix it. You got to organize things, and then well, that means you have to convince people you have to like this and and you know by the time you realize that it isn't just a simple thing of going and fixing it you got to organize a lot and get resources and get people oriented and then find out what to do about it and then that's only just one sort of isolated special thing that you pick because it's such specific and then just one Saturday I just says oh god it's just so complex you know to one person says I'm going to do it and then uh, what kind of dawned on me is, well, let's see. The problem is that it has to be dealt with collectively. And we're just not getting collectively smarter enough to do that. So that's the big problem. We just got to get collectively smarter. Oh, now why don't I aim at that kind of a career goal? So I'd read one book about computers. I think it was called Giant Brains. It was very, you know, describe, trying to describe it because that time was the spring of 1951, and there were three trial computers being built in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, some in England were, and they were big roomfuls with vacuum tube elements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Every bit had to be closed in the vacuum tube. Well, you could had magnetic drums. All you had to do was wait for it to go around once, and you got access to it. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why? Well, my experiences were a little bit later. I remember loading paper tape with punched holes in the uh, mid-60s you know, right. to, to load your program or whatever it was. So it was a yeah. little different, but this was even earlier, yeah. Yeah. Then somehow the radar experience and the fact that the uh, electronics of a radar set 
draws the symbols and things on your screen in the cathode ray tube for you to see dynamically what the range and all that are. Oh, so, you know, if a radar set can do that, a computer, it just intuitively for certainty that the computer could draw whatever you want on the screen if it can punch cards and print, you know, something like that, without knowing the details like that to certainty. And so, so that's what the image I got is, hey, and computer complex could support a number of people and should be able to be interconnected with other concepts so that quite a few people could be joined into a common kind of knowledge base to be working together and uh, hey, we could just really do a lot for boosting our capability. So I said, gee, apparently I'll need to go do some research and such. So I applied to Stanford and Berkeley and both of them accepted me for graduate school, but Berkeley had a research program to build an electronic computer vacuum tubes, and so that obviously was the one, and so I went up to Berkeley, and I guess it was like five years later, got a PhD, I don't know why it took so long, <laughs> five, I was teaching part way in there in the middle, oh, I guess it's because I got caught up in the kind of, oh, the ideas I got to do the research, <laughs> I built a, a new kind of shift register to store data, and mm -hmm. that the bits were stored as that little glow or no glow of radio frequency oscillation of the voltage in semi-vacuum filled with gas. Mm. And it turns out the whole the bit structure would be glows and no glows along an ordered thing of a row of glass. And you can make a spiral like that and have a whole shift register. And you can just mm -hmm. move around. Mm -hmm. And um, I owed that to what I'd observed when and the radar, or big, rad big, powerful radios you're trying to mm -hmm. tune up. So you, they showed us that you hold one of your little neon bulbs up near the antenna, mm -hmm. and uh, you could tune till it got the brightest thing. And then, but I noticed one day that as you dropped it down, it would go out finally. But there was a level of energy in which, if it was already glowing, it stayed glowing. If it wasn't glowing, it it wouldn't glow. See? So it was bistable. So I, I didn't call it bistable, I just, oh, that's interesting. So when I was in the computer, learning about computers, I remembered that and said, oh, maybe you could do something useful. So I did. But anyway. So how did that evolve into what seems like a lifelong yeah. dedicated career in this area? The thing about using computers interactively was still what I was really aiming for. Uh, of course, the computer there never quite got working while I was there, the research computer. But I started teaching when, you know, when, before I got my PhD, and I really liked that. So I was sort of said I got my degree and was an acting assistant professor and enjoying the teaching and looking forward to the way computers would evolve and get to do what I want to do. Not being, you know, being anybody that would listen, I would tell what I wanted to do. So one day, though, a professor, he was, he was an older guy and acting as associate, he was an associate professor in economics or something, and we met him socially. So he said, well, Doug, what are you aiming to do in your special interest? So I started telling him about interaction on computers and things like that. And finally, he uh, sort of held up a hand and says, well, that's really kind of interesting, except maybe I'd ask you, do you know how promotion is done in universities? 
And country boy Doug uh, dropped his jaw, and well, he never really thought about it. Can you imagine? <laughs> he says, well, essentially it's by peer review, because promotion really means it's how many well-accepted papers you put into the best journals, see, that you can publish. And all those papers don't get in unless the peer review system there accepts them as a paper for the journals. Mm -hmm. So he says, I can tell you right now, if you keep talking like this, you'll be an acting assistant professor forever. He wasn't trying to beat me up or something, but he was just telling me that, uh, that the, the people will laugh at you and won't take it seriously. And oh, and I begin to realize that that's right. Oh, well, I guess this isn't the place for me to work on this, is it? And so, uh, oh, okay, so I... I'd uh, lived down the peninsula working at Ames Laboratory, and uh, and it turned out when I was in the Navy, my last uh, six months or so of training were at Treasure Island, Navy base there. Mm -hmm. And so we heard about what the instruments we had, et cetera, or the, this audio oscillator and stuff where it built it, a company called Hewlett Packard just down there, you know, it mm -hmm. was one of the only electronics outfits on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Um, so I came down and, oh, they looked at the kind of research I'd done and said, oh, hey, well, how are you? That's great. And then I said, oh, but, hey, I'm, a, I'm counting on working in computers, so I'm assuming you guys will get into them pretty soon. Oh, sorry, Doug, not a chance. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> so I said, well, let's see, maybe Stanford would be somewhat different from Berkeley, so wrote a letter to the Dean of Engineering and said the kind of things I'd learned about computer building and such, you know, electronics and things, and I could come and I could start giving courses and help them get into it too. And he wrote back and said, well, we're a small school and we have to specialize in highly academic things. And since computers are only a service activity, we don't contemplate ever, ever having courses in computer development or design. Or <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so... They obviously hadn't planned on Google yet, I guess, uh, <laughs> a little bit later in life. Oh boy, there wasn't anything. Yeah. Uh, but the only thing computer-ish was at SRI, they had a contract from Bank of America to help build a computer to sort of exploratory pursuit of having a computer help do the uh, bookkeeping and bank work. Hmm. And so they had a computer called Irma, E-R-M-A, that they were building and working on. I think I remember hearing of this, yeah. yes. So I applied there, and friends of mine told me, don't talk about this interactive use, for God's sakes. <laughs> so, you know, so, huh. I, so I didn't talk about that, and I got hired, because <laughs> the patents I'd been getting from the other kinds of things I'd been researching were sort of stimulating. So anyway, but it took took three years before I could get any kind of research going carefully. My friends kept saying, don't talk about it, it'll, ruin, it'll just ruin your standing. And, uh, but I had, when I worked at Ames Laboratory, uh, so I was an electrical engineer and, and pretty soon you get, to, you get you get know enough about the way the wind tunnels work, et cetera, that you get on trouble calls off a wind tunnel something goes wrong during the night mm. that you're on call. So I'd go out there and try to fix like this and try to 
you know, aeronautical scientists, guys who had been waiting for a month or so to get there, two days with the wind tunnel or something mm -hmm. like that. And, hey, hey, we just, we're not, go get our experiment done this time. We said, don't get it going. Why don't you just start it again? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure, you could you know, burn out some of those big, huge motors. It'd be months and months to Oh, no boy. Yeah. So uh, anyway, but so they, they, they were kind of nice and patient with me. And uh, so I'd ask them things like, how can you, how can you do a test on a little wing foil and then apply that kind of data to a great big wing? And they said, oh, it's glad you asked that, sort of. But then their lights would light up because then they could preach, see, yes. mm -hmm. <laughs> talk about the whole thing about scaling. It's a, it's a real specialty. I just remembered that, that the thing is, you change the scale, a lot of parameters do, and a lot of devices won't work if you change the scale. And uh, good point. Yeah, and, it's, it's uh, kind of kind of like say in the human body when people grow beyond a certain height, just making the body larger doesn't work. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. You have problems with the vascular system and right. the the structural system. The bones can't support the weight even if they are made bigger. Yep, just doesn't work. Exactly. So I happen to be talking to at some Air Force Research Center, some guy, you know, one of the principals there operating at this, told him, hey, you know, the scaling is, makes a difference, and making all devices smaller and smaller is what you have to do in order to get more and more computer power. He said, oh, really? And I told him what little I knew. So uh, they gave me a grant, and so that was like 1958, I think it did. Mm. So I wrote a paper about that and said, and my conclusion was that, hey, Great learning how to make things smaller, smaller, smaller. We'll get into new phenomena and new kinds of devices and such, and they'll be smaller and more compact and faster because the scaling has that impact. And if we really go after that, we'll have all the computing power we'll need because we're limited now. So then I got that tied up in, in a research package, in a paper I wrote, and gave a talk at a conference on it. And it was a room full of engineers, and I was just one guy on there technology scheme like that, but I didn't know what to say, but I finally, all night thinking about it, got up and said, well, suppose this room and everything in it suddenly got bigger by a factor of 10, every 10 times wider, taller, deeper. Would you notice? He just paused a minute. I could see them looking around. I said, so you look over there and you say, well, that guy is going to be 10 times bigger, but he's 10 times farther away. So he'd subtend the same angle vision. So you wouldn't notice, huh? You know, it was sort of like, that's what they all decided, you know, I'd say, okay, how much more would you weigh? It'd take long to get, so you'd be 10 by 10 by 10, you'd be a thousand times the volume, you'd weigh a thousand times as much, huh? Why? Well, how much stronger would you be? Another pause, they think you'd be stronger. I said, well, that's depending on the cross-section area of your bones and muscles. Mm -hmm. So you'd only be a hundred times stronger. So the effect would be the equivalent of you being ten times heavier right now without any more strength. Mm. See, so you'd weigh over a thousand pounds. <laughs> See. That would hurt. It's hard enough getting out of bed in the morning anyway. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so then I went on and talked about kind of things that we've got to start seriously and consciously going after the dimensional scaling of our devices and such as that. I, I couldn't sell it in there like that, but it got started out in the world.
So I switched to doing conceptual things about, well, if we want to get collectively smarter, what's that? So you know, a year or so later, I was really getting in with the idea of, general idea of augmenting. So I did a, for a year and a half, and wrote a paper called Augmenting the Human Intellect, which we've already augmented it with language and concepts of all kinds, you know, mathematics and things mm -hmm. of that sort, and logic and formal logic and all of that, that we've really augmented a great deal our intellect, at least our IQ or something. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I said, look, what, why can't we go after that with what the computers could do? Because so much of what we do is related to symbols on, on sheets, and we could put these symbols on screens and Look what you can do to them with them and such as that. So the methodology. So this led me into a, uh, the whole concept of augmentation. So the realization came to me quite early in this that you, you don't just go. Uh, well, a lot of people are talking about office automation. See, you start looking at the whole augmentation and say, how did we get the capabilities we have now? And it's such an interesting mix of all sorts of artifacts then conceptual things, and then language, which was the way in which our minds seemed to be able to express complex concepts and thoughts, and, uh, and could actually follow them, which led to reason and logic and mathematics and things of that sort. But all at the same time, you had to find ways to get more of these thoughts so they weren't so, you know, uh, you just spoke, they were vanished and gone, mm -hmm. and so the whole thing of writing, and look at the writing, but look how t look how long it took uh, from all the very early people, the very few people who could learn to write in the complex way of writing, and then the way of reproducing it, so how many people could read what they wrote, and the invention of printing was a huge boost like that, mm -hmm. and that got it out, but then formal schooling and so it was a long evolution of the way in which you could symbolize your thoughts and put them on record and paper, et cetera, and go. And, uh, but then you look at the, the, the same time, if there wasn't the kind of thing of schools and such that could take care of that, you know, help people learn, and libraries and all kinds of things. So you just look at the, all the evolution that went on in our human society from the very first time people started having spoken language. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. a very good point to remember the systems that we build around these things they initially seem so simple. The first couple of concepts, say speech and creating of symbols basically represent speech you know, or, mm -hmm. or ideas or whatever. And then it evolves into a whole system of how it's delivered, how it is interacted with on a daily basis. And right. of course, computers, depending on your point of view, they're helping us a lot. We've also become a bit addicted to them <laughs> well, in a few ways now, and they've grown from those same roots. Oh, we've become addicted to shoes and uh, <laughs> all kinds of <laughs> this things. This is true. We're addicted to shoes, and as my father used to say, looking at all of us with glasses on, he said that you uh -huh. realize that if this were back in the Stone Age, we'd be dead by now, because we couldn't see anything coming <laughs> after us. <laughs> I ended up, though, pretty soon evolved that, hey, are these different artifacts that came but the harnessing of those always had other things of cultures and practices and things of that sort, the skills that were sort of on the human side. So I ended up saying, well, there's a human system and a tool system, the artifacts. 
then you start looking at all the different artifacts that have appeared in our society and uh, wow you think and every one of them caused a resulting shift and change in the whole picture of all the whole augmentation system see and uh, you know that uh, the ox cart well that was great well it didn't last because it got replaced by something better mm -hmm. and such but in the meantime you know you have you you, you well you I, I think look back and say well which which artifacts might you feel created the greatest change in human society? I finally concluded that that uh, cultivation tools mm. let the hunter-gatherers stop, and that started the whole thing of you know, civilizations and and political structures and towns and <laughs> and roadways and good point. commerce and uh, things of this sort, but. Another one I'd love to think about is elevators. <laughs> mm. oh, what would our life be like without elevators now? No, I even remember the numerical numbers concepts. They talk about how the invention of the zero was an interesting thing in terms oh. of its repercussions. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah. and I don't want to tie down the whole conversation with that, but it just was to me very interesting. Somebody even wrote an entire book on the concept of the zero uh -huh. and what it meant and how it had evolved and how it had spread through and all the things we do and how we use it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's in the conceptual kinds of things, language and concepts, it's a hugely important thing. For, mm -hmm. and for let's, let's pull this a little bit forward. This is a little bit about the evolution. What are the things that are kind of really getting you excited now that you'd like to be kind of calling attention to the audience here related to that. In, in the computer things and the communication, etc., and uh, the first World Wide Web stuff came out, it was really not the internet, it was an ARPANET. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the people were, you know, to me, I suddenly, because I've been thinking and writing about this already, and uh, doing the other kinds of building, like, for me, the concept of using a computer to help us work with our symbols, etc. Oh, wow, look at the things you can do. So we were the first ones that were doing hyperlinking and all of that, but I just said, well, you know, that's just a start. I wanted right away to be able to link to any, any object, because you're saying you're referring to another object. It's not just to another document. See? Mm -hmm. So our, our addressability let us do that right from the start. And then I said, well, and also the computer can doesn't have to show us the same image that a page does. You know, that's that's a paradigm that has had its day, and let's have it so that if you want to, you can change how it shows you things, just to help you study it, like you pick up on a physical object and rotate it and in and out and stuff like this. So we started exploring different views. So I had the programmers say, well, hey, just let you, if you go two different ways of looking at it, one way, all you see, you see the whole thing. And the other way, it'll just show you the first line of every paragraph. Hey, that immediately was useful. And mm -hmm. uh, then we started evolving more and more different kind of viewing. So in our links, URL links, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then we had a syntactic place to write what the specification of the view would be. So you jump on a link, it'll take you to a certain place and show you a specified view. Mm -hmm. 
called ViewSpecs in, mm -hmm. in the system we built, the, the NLS system, online system. <laughs> Later we renamed it Augment. But uh, well, just really powerful, that jumping and viewing flexibility. And if you had all that flexibility and addressability, you could really start getting commands that were very specific about, I want to delete a word. Well, you could deliver the, say what word by either clicking on it mm -hmm. or giving its address. Same way you'd say, well, what if I want a whole paragraph? Well, you get that. We arranged so the files could be structured easily as an outline form. Uh, so I want a whole branch, move a whole branch. See? Or just these, these verbs and nouns started to grow, and so the whole interaction system was based upon a command language. I want to re move some object, you know, so you just type M for move and, and uh, S for a statement mm -hmm. or, or branch or, and uh, boy, it just was so, so powerful in that system. So, so one of the keys, let me just kind of, kind of play back a little bit here. Let's take your example of reproducing the page that it's been common as, especially in the computer industry, but certainly in a lot of other industries too, that the first things that you invent look very much like the thing that existed in a different form. Mm -hmm. I guess I think of even the e-books were a great example. They tried to create something that was the same size as a book that looked just like a book, realizing yeah. that it didn't actually... Automobile used to be called horseless carriage. It's true, horseless carriage. <laughs> and one of the results of that was you're not taking advantage of any of the power of the new yes. approach. <coughs> even more so, you aren't really thinking of reinventing what you're trying to do right. as you go forward and, and think of it very differently. I, I've, I discovered the name paradigm, the term paradigm, mm -hmm. and say, hey, that's been a, you know, a problem all years because paradigms change in some sort of slow social cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And if you've still got a paradigm existing that isn't, isn't appropriate for the way the rest of your society has gotten to be, Mm -hmm. You know, I got that. So this is very much like the paradigm of the page, just has stuck and stuck and stuck, boy. And the paradigm of uh, office automation. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, you know, trying to use the term augmentation. You know, you're not just. It's it's more than that. You're not just automating the things yes. you have to do. You've got new things you can do. And, uh, Almost to some extent, I guess it'll be interesting to see if I'm going to trigger something or not, but you know, think of McLuhan's concepts about media and clothing and things like that, where mm -hmm. he would talk about things being an extension right. of us. You're going well beyond that. You're really saying it's not just an extension that allows you to do more of the same, exactly. that allows you to do something very different. Right. And, intera and actually not just do something very different, but the means by which you accomplish that is right. very different. And then the and the, when you get a picture of kind of the whole augmentation system, mm -hmm. you realize it's just going to have all kinds of repercussions, you know, and that'll change the way you do, you know, activity X. Well, then if you do activity X differently, there'll be other options within that to, to, for different kind of artifacts and tools and conventions and practices. It just got to be a whole structure in there. You say conventions are going to change, language will change, mm -hmm. customs, social relations, organizations will change the way they work and operate. 
then you know, the roles between people would, would change and such. We got to mm -hmm. this, and uh, let's accept it. And uh, nobody is smart enough to design the whole new augmentation system that will be best there in five years after the introduction of some brand new technology. Nobody's smart enough. It's too complex uh, in a relation among all these things. So if no one's smart enough, which I also would grant you, if even if we were we thought we were smart enough, we still all have our biases. We have our own narrow vision that we came up with, and right. how do you get past that? So nobody's said, smart enough. Hey, it's a big coevolution of all these factors. So the whole thing is how do you facilitate that evolution? That's the strategically the optimum way to go after that that I could picture. So one of those things is early on kind of getting people to realize the pervasive influence of the whole thing of paradigms. How much the way they think about something affects how they're able, <laughs> if, if not willing, to uh, look at changing it. And uh, a new one. And so Boy, did I ever, just the lessons that I learned <laughs> directly, you know, besides being told that the two leading universities in California, or, you know, something like that, well, sorry that they're not going to get into computers because <laughs> then a big thing that happened at the sort of the end of the 60s was there were two groups of people that started to make headway in computer usage. And one of them was the office automation group. Peak place of that was at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center called Xerox Park. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the real use of this in the office is going to be to automate the secretary's job. It's office automation. You know, and you got to make it really easy to learn, et cetera, because for the secretary. Well, they're doing repetitive work, which a significant part of it at the time did not make much use of the brain. It was mm -hmm. just copying things and from one form into another, basically. But that was the whole point about the human-computer interface, was that it kind of be easy to learn for a secretary. And the other group of people were the artificial intelligence group that was, you hardly hear anything about them these days, but that's true. that was one of the dominant things, that we're going to make computers so smart that, that but that whole picture was, we're going to make computers so smart that uh, humans won't have to learn. <laughs> between those two, which were the prevailing ones in the research world, and then then Engelbart's stuff got just laughed at and pointed at and <laughs> as being way too hard and complex to learn and such like this. And nothing I could say about the paradigms, you know, that we can use our heads so much more, you know, we can open up. And I, the model of an augmentation system, all this is built upon the basic human, your inborn capabilities the capabilities to learn to do different kinds of things, see? Mm -hmm. and so you're, the way you can do things physically, skillfully, moving, moving, you know, the physical skills like this, capabilities can be trained like that. Then there's the uh, uh, sensory capabilities, and then there are perceptual capabilities, and that was a really interesting thing for me to learn about. The perceptual side. Yeah, you know, I never, never. You don't usually think about it, but uh, you, you look at some object, and uh, you know, here's a pen. I look at a pen, 
And how long does it take you to d decide that it's a pen? I'm not even conscious of it. It's so right, fast. Right. That's the perception, mm -hmm. perceptual stuff here. Your uh, sensory stuff gets the visual pattern of it like that. But mm -hmm. boom, it's converted to a, um, oh, I perceive that that's a pen. It's just such a marvelous phenomenon in your head that it just got it. So that's a big, big, big thing. But that's trainable. That's how he got trained. It, uh, Absolutely. I mean, I got, actually, there was a great example I saw. There was a movie some years ago, not that strong a movie, so I'll get the name out of it, but it was a man that was blind, and one of the storylines was that his girlfriend was extremely interested in seeing if she could help him to be able to see. He'd been blind since birth, basically, and it turned out that there was a procedure that they could do that might allow him to see. And even ignoring a few of the scientific things, such as stereo vision would not have developed, and a few other things, the cortex probably wouldn't have developed right. <laughs> Let's just ignore that, because it was still <laughs> fiction. The thing that was interesting about it is that he did have the surgery. It didn't last. It ended up having to revert. But for a period of weeks, he was looking at things that he'd been around all his life, even touched, felt, and dealt with, and he had no idea what they were. Somebody right. put an apple in front of him, and he didn't know what it was. Right. Absolutely, that's the because he the didn't have any of that procedural perception skill right. in there through this means. When he closed his eyes, he knew it was an apple, uh -huh. and could touch it and smell yes. it and right. taste it and all that. Right. But looking at it was totally missing. That's that's the, that's the kind of thing to get people to sort of get the idea what perception means. It's that, and then it's a. It's a developed skill. Far more than we realize. Oh, it, yeah. And, and, it, and it's layered. It's, it's with cultural issues as well as just adaptive issues. Oh, yes. How um, you perceive. I mean, the, the good news about that is if you actually think about that for a while, you realize that you really have learned a lot, even if you feel like there's a lot oh, you don't know. <laughs> without that capability, we, we just be I don't know what. You know, every, every animal mm -hmm. shows so it's a sign that that's, you know, there's a danger thing, you know, with a certain kind of rustle or something like that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's that's perceived as. Well, and our bodies also evolved, too. I remember this is probably back when I was doing the same thing to people I was around that you did to people you were around. I remember being fascinated by how the eyes interacted with things, and that's probably why I went into optical engineering when I first went into it as a career. One of them was, why is it that the eye's vision peaks in the green? I, why, why, why does the eye's vision uh, sensitivity peak in the green? Mm -hmm. was something I was fascinated by when I was a little kid. And mm -hmm. then I had lots of theories, and I read lots of theories. Of course, we don't really necessarily know, but I saw it as related to food. And then the whole idea of how vision works, we are able to detect motion differently from the way we detect objects and some of that perhaps is related to danger and all that. But if you think mm -hmm. about it, these are all things that just happen that we don't think about. Yeah. And when you, then you design machines that are interacting with you and you aren't conscious of all these things, you're, you're really losing a lot. Yes. You're losing a lot of possibility and, and everything else. But I, I drove a lot of people nuts. My, my classic one was I had a spectroscopy exhibit that I showed when I think I was 10. And they said, you know, the parents of other students are the judges, right, for the science fair. And they looked at it and they said, 
so why did you get involved in this? And I said, I wanted to see what it was that would enable honeybees to see in the infrared. I wanted to understand why, you know, how that would work. And uh -huh. they looked at me, patted me on the head, nice boy, and they gave me a ribbon anyway. But it was, <laughs> yeah. it was one, but you know, for me it was fascinating. It's like, why is it they see in the infrared and we don't? Uh -huh. Why do they need to see in the infrared? How do they see in the infrared? Mm -hmm. uh, what would it mean if we could? Yes. And could we that's do something different? Oh, that's a terrific point. That's. I wish I'd met you a long time ago. <laughs> and that's uh, that. You know, I haven't. I haven't discussed this with anybody yet that had as you know has had such parallel experience. Well, I ran into some of the same paths you did, which is the nice boy syndrome too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so it it is to me really you know an interesting field and you almost begin to wonder well, what is it now that we're missing that's of oh. a similar ilk oh i tell you do you have some examples of that you think oh yes the whole thing about uh, hard to learn is still there mm -hmm. you know that that's strong among the computer stuff and you you know but you you, you look at say how automobiles evolved and their use in heavy traffic, etc. Well, I got interested in automobiles when I was a little kid, and uh, got to reading about the, their emergence in the early 1900s. And such. Mm -hmm. that's why I met the horseless carriage was right on top of my sure. tongue. See, but uh, the thing that women, you know, serious people, not because of a prejudice, but that women wouldn't be able to be effective drivers because, you know. Because men are the ones who learn to operate more heavy machinery and all that, and uh, that, well, <laughs> maximum speeds, boy, you can't imagine going over 25 to be safe. Stuff like that, and uh, that's funny. Uh, uh, just all of this, but then the reaction I got from the easy to learn and natural to use, you know, operational mantra the office automation and the artificial intelligence people drove me right out of business. In other words, if you were to allow that paradigm to bend a bit, that we also might be doing something more significant. Oh yeah, so this, when I get to saying, hey, we can do significant progress in augmenting our collective IQ, you know, our collective ability to understand. I've been talking about that for over 20 years, or longer. <laughs> so I have an automobile thought, and then I want to come back to, to you. The one other thing that this just reminded me when you were talking about the issue of driving, good example of where our collective intelligence defeats us. There was a study done, I think it was a couple of years, just a couple of years ago, that was done by some students in college where they hired a helicopter to, with camera equipment to study how gridlock appears in traffic flow. And their conclusion, right or wrong, but intellectually it makes sense to me now, is that one of the chief causes of slowdowns in traffic is people changing lanes to try to go faster. <laughs> I can believe it. And I'm if confused. everybody stayed where they were, the whole thing would move faster, but individually nobody wants to put up with that uh -huh. and it's to me a classic case where there's a paradigm shift that would have to happen in other words for yeah. example if you put barriers between the lanes uh -huh. oh, it, would, it, would it would actually speed up which is an interesting oh, that's, phenomenon that's terrific it, to me it's an example of something that is incredibly simple 
and yet if, if you just say that it ought to be something that is intuitive, it doesn't work. You know, people right. don't intuitively oh, think yeah. that. Right, right. That's terrific. So how, how could you, uh, it would also cut down on admission because, uh, you know, it would uh, save... Uh, Absolutely. You wouldn't be on the roads long enough, you know, as, as long, you know, because, of course, that's the other thing where the carpool lanes actually, apparently, because less of us carpool than they'd like, actually increase pollution <laughs> rather than lower it overall, which is one of those sad carpool things. Carpool things, why? Yeah, well, because they're not used as much. And what it does is where you had, say you have four lanes, one of which is a carpool lane, if, say, 90% of the people are in the three lanes, 10% in that carpool lane, instead of 25% in each, the net speed goes down and the consumption goes up. At least that's the, I mean, I, I may have the calculations wrong, but that was one of the examples they did. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of perhaps, you know, ideas here, it, again, keeping in mind you're talking to people that are in kind of all walks of life all over the world that would tend to hear this. Are there some areas where you think that it would be really interesting to see some very serious work done in this field, you know, applying oh, to a specific absolutely. business area that you might want to throw out as ideas here. There's a whole. And I don't want. I don't want to steal your own ideas. It's no. more just like areas that people might be able to consider and think about here as part of the audience. Oh yeah, it's further augmenting our collective ability. So we say, oh, now we look at things like, hey, our universities can educate people to know, you know, that general level of understanding mm -hmm. that the society has that does a, a great deal about affecting how we can perceive challenges we're looking ahead as our complexity is growing and growing it's sort of like okay well maybe I do that, that I sometimes characterize society as we're all living in one big clumsy vehicle and there are different sort of cabins or spaces in it for different people and you know groups of people may be more crowded in one and blah, 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 like that so this is a social kind of thing but somehow that that thing you can visualize it as something with giant thing with all kinds of different wheels you know going up you know lumbering across you know without being aware of it we're driving it faster and faster it's the things we do are making it move faster and faster and the terrain is more and more complex and this is kind of a way of looking at our, our whole wor worldwide sort of structure of social, cultural, <laughs> economic, everything all like that. And it's being driven faster, but how far ahead to can see about that is not enough for the speed we're going, but also our control of steering it and braking it are just pitifully inadequate. So how long can that exist before we crash? So how do we get collectively able to see and steer and control? <laughs> this is what I mean by the thing that I've been pursuing all the time is, you know, call it collective IQ or whatever. So it's just the computer age really offers a significant improvement. And, and as the World Wide Web <laughs> has grown to, to be, yes, and I can point to the start of it and things like that. When it very first got started, you know, the people that started from the U.S. Defense Department, mm -hmm. Mount mm -hmm. DARPA, got the idea of, well, you could build an internet, the ARPANET, 
their picture was right away about the uh, computational thing can be about because then it was one of their their principal investigators and uh, so the first meeting in which the people who were running the ARPA uh, information processing techniques thing two two guys <laughs> were explaining to the 20 or so principal investigators the idea of how the network could work the packets would switch around and stuff like that and they wanted to see that going and their whole picture was the advantage that would have in computational thing that if your computer didn't have a, a, a computer process that could do a certain thing you could ship your data over to those guys and they would do it and ship back the answer to, to the to the network mm -hmm. I tried to voice and say hey but then the collaboration capability would be I, but that, that just didn't didn't take because then I, I pointed out that hey you know the business of how you use this thing and such is kind of complicated so you could use the same internet to have a network information center that could carry the information about the practices and principles and all that uh, I'd be very happy to build up one and run it like that mm -hmm. so I got mm -hmm. that job so that's that's why my computer was the second one that was connected to what's now the whole ARP internet see <laughs> but Boy, the prevailing paradigms were just wouldn't wouldn't go with me. Some years later, a guy that had been a principal starter of all this thing in in, in the in the government was an MIT scientist professor guy. I liked I thought him was like a big brother. So he came by my lab, and we'd been going about decade then in the mid, mid 70s and, and so I was telling him what we'd done that we got this this system with all its augmenting capability and we were letting anybody want to subscribe to it that was on the ARPANET and we were supporting customers all over the country and doing it through the network and uh, <coughs> client server relationship mm -hmm. we had a really very simple cl client that they could implement and use by dialing into the internet <laughs> going like this. Then we'd hired four or five I said special special people to be out there to help facilitate their learning and mm -hmm. get in trouble. We call them some application support people, you know you know, bright young female liberal arts graduates that wouldn't be threatening to anybody <laughs> and some of them see and since we had out there and they just were doing just marvelous jobs. I was turned around to tell him I was on the board sketching out the mm -hmm. topography of our customer groups and all that, and turned around and he was sitting there just looking aghast at me. And well, what's the matter? You just told me your system's no damn good. Now here's a real paradigm thing. Well, why? My gosh, it's doing what all that stuff. If it was any damn good, you wouldn't need any of those damn girls out there you know, like that, the computer itself would know, understand what the people don't understand and teach them. Of course, I've never seen a system yet that that does that. There's certainly nothing that challenges you, nothing that challenges you in any way for growth is innately intuitive, you know, in, at least in and of itself. I mean, we, we have classic examples of all the attempts to redesign a keyboard, you know, instead mm -hmm. of the QWERTY keyboard, which right was developed in a different way and admittedly if somebody had stuck another keyboard in front of me right now I'd have a problem with that because sure. I've learned on this but 
the idea of the of people that can help you and guide you and train you, encourage you, whatever, it's a key. Any, any new software I've used, it's truly, maybe not revolutionary, because that's probably too strong a step, but where I really see a, a significant evolutionary change requires learning and requires support. It, mm. You don't just intuitively say, oh yeah, this works. Mm -hmm. This, this is, uh, I, but it was such a prevailing idea. He came right out of the AI world. And he was part strong in that, so it's just such a thing of of the prejudice, the paradigm, and prejudice against what we were doing. Wow! So we just uh, and then and that was the end of any support from the government. <laughs> and uh, you know, so the and the whole issue, you know, I just kept saying, well, where did I go wrong? Because I still just firmly believe that that generalized picture of of augmentation is just for real. That and that, yes, we can we can augment collective capabilities because they've already been augmented hugely. You know, the ability for a country to understand enough to set up the rules and laws and things to do what they can do. What would you say the IQ level was? The, not very high. You know, you say, well, there were a lot of people that knew about global warming and stuff, but collectively it was denied. When it finally did get it, it was years late. So, well, then collectively we have to resolve that problem. And I haven't heard of anything yet that, that says it will resolve the problem and still give us the kind of energy utilities that we've come to need. So what do we have to do? Cut way, way, way down on all the energy we need mm -hmm. in society. Oh boy. So how can you even move around? What kind of social structure? What kind of you know, commercial? No, exactly. I mean, if you, if you run this full circle, so many of these things we could go into a lot of depth. They go back even to the way the automobile system went through. I actually covered this in a mini podcast at one time where it was an essay. It was called A Crisis of Energy. And one of the things I was pointing out was that there was this long juggernaut led by actually three groups, the oil companies, the automobile companies, and the tire companies that were all working together to encourage consumption of all three, even to the point that they formed what would now be an illegal consortium that actually bought out streetcar lines across the country and, and ripped them up. <laughs> San Jose, for example, used to have one, and that's what this group, Standard Oil, Firestone, Tire and Rubber and General Motors had created this company that did just that. They, they would buy them and then they would tear oh. them up. Gee, that's, that ought to be taught in every school. Hey, there's an example. Uh, there, there's an example and then of course we have the Highway Act in the 1950s that allowed the interstate highway system to go through and that we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that. Two, the, 1956 is when the act was signed by Eisenhower and it was between that and mass transit systems that they were going after and the end result of all that is suburbia you know and, and people on roads and everything else that all happened at that point and the lobbyists That's, without looking into it and at all like an average citizen maybe mm -hmm. I've always thought oh that was a nice thing to do sure well <laughs> it, it's not whether it's right or wrong it was it was lobbied mm -hmm. as anything gets lobbied yes. that's certainly normal I, it's hard to argue that's the way our system works and the end result is we have these systems in place, and that was back when fuel was cheap and everything else, and we now have a culture that, to your point, we've been augmented one way, I guess, if you like it, and to shift from that 
Oh, it's dramatic. Right. Oh yeah. So, but the, the the focus on how can we better get the kind of uh, capability to understand more complex things in a general way, in a collective way, that it takes to operate a. Uh, even if we may have to collectively say, how do we run the government in a way in which it can be a lot more effective? Well, of course, corruption out of there and such as that, but, but, but just, there's just no single fix that's all so complex. So you say, just generally speaking, we have to get smarter about what our collective world's doing. This is probably a good place to get ready to close here. I know people might want to contact you will hear this. If they'd like to get in touch with you or learn more or to be able to perhaps well, even... This is going to take collective action. Yeah. So how do you how do you get that? And then how do I explain what my strategies... You know, it's a very complex thing of how many facets in the world change in this business of how do we facilitate the evolution of all these concurrently changing factors in our lives so that we can get towards the kind of you know, sustainable thing with the kind of benefits we like to see that our society should have. So, just look at you know, how do you cure the AIDS situation out in the world? How do you cure the kind of poverty levels that prevail in many parts of the world that the rest of us shouldn't, you know, consider as untenable? <laughs> we can't go with them being that miserable, etc. So if they wanted to get in touch with you or to learn more about some of what you're talking about, is there a website they should look at or is there a... Well, there is a website. Uh, p part of the strategy, there's a term bootstrap that arose some years ago that I, which it says, oh, hey, if you reach down and grab your bootstraps and lift yourself up in the air, mm -hmm. this was an old fable about how you could get up and see higher. So in the strategy about how to improve the collective IQ, the first stages, and all along too, is as you find ways to do it, it'd be handy if those ways at the outset, in particular, focused on ways to improve our ability to improve. So the better we get, then the better, faster, and better we're going to get better. Sure. And that's why I termed the term bootstrap. That's why I called it the bootstrap analysis and the boot, you know what bootstrap institute. And, and the website is, is www.bootstrap.org.org.org.bootstrap.org. Uh, that's one I just haven't been able to afford to keep up very beautifully. <laughs> no, people are looking more for ideas, I think, than worrying about whether or not it's as beautiful as it is. Anyway, there, all the papers I ever published are there, clear back to that 1962 one. So I'm looking for support that can get a group of people together and get going, and so. It's not enough, I feel, just to say this is what has to be done. So what can communities do? So I say the one thing that any community would want to do that's, I talk about especially improvement communities that are explicitly out after to improve some part of society. <laughs> it's, it's a way in which if they can start developing and improving the kind of dynamic knowledge repositories, and that dy DKR, Dynamic Knowledge Repository, becomes a central focus of a thing to learn how to do better and better and how to use better and better as, as a focus for you know, ex explicit R&D pursuit. 
So he says, okay, if I get improvement communities out there and if I get them to use this networking capability that will help build in knowledge repositories, I'll call them a networked improvement community. So it seems like starting to explicitly go after that and many professional societies and philanthropic societies do that. They, they have repositories mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So sure. how do you create that to be the most effective way to really be able to represent the kind of knowledge that's involved with and be more and more learnable and more and more question, you know, that you can question or challenge it more effectively about issues and then develop those challenges and questions out into just improving the, the basic content. So there are explicit things to do and that's what the kind of computer aids that I've been pursuing for all the years are sort of oriented that, that would really, really help. If you just think of what a simple improvement it would be is if you changed the, the structure and the nature of the way that your knowledge is stored from saying it's like ordinary web knowledge is stored to fix it a little bit so that your links could go and address not just to a document but to any paragraph in it. Now, there are ways we could do that relatively simply. and. Just think about what that would change in the way when people start having yeah, discussions go. Right. So that's one thing I, I got approach. So how do we get people to say, let's go do it? So which professional society or philanthropic society would say, well, that would be great. Hey, Doug, how do we do it? <laughs> so as we close then, just telling everybody out there that if the, you are called to some of this in any way, we certainly would love to hear from you and have you write us either here at Sternova or through the Bootstrap site and be able to contact Doug directly. And again, thanks very much, Doug. Oh, it's been a pleasure. As we close this episode of Sternova, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this very special episode in all its length and detail. Doug Engelbart, who celebrated his 82nd birthday just a few months ago, has already lived an incredibly full life of strategic innovation that has indeed touched us all, as you have heard time and time again throughout this podcast. In this conversation, there are so many lessons I hope you do take the time to consider and think about for yourselves and your own organizations. There's the idea that augmentation in computing is about far more than just improving the man-machine interface. It's about leveraging computer power, other types of machines, on our collective intelligence all at the same time. Then there's also the idea, which seems to me so radical even now, that truly revolutionary innovations will require us to take some time to learn, and so do require more acts of will to get them adopted. But they will be worth it. Beyond all that, the idea that I'd like to leave you with at the end of this podcast, above all else, is how incredible it is to see what one person can make happen starting from the powerful vision of just wanting to do something really important for all mankind, as he said so early in this talk. As we close, please take some time today, maybe even this hour, to check for yourself if you are on that path in your own career and with your own company. Why? Because it matters to you, those you're close to now, and all our collective grandchildren. And Doug, thanks for the vision and wisdom you shared from your past 82 birthdays and for what we can all accomplish together thanks to you for many such birthdays to come.
That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.